Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you here today. So glad you're here, and, and I want to echo what Kelsey said, that if this is your first time with us today, man, welcome. We're just glad you're here, and glad that God has brought you to this place, you're checking this out, and I hope that your first visit turns into a second visit, and then a third visit, and then before long, you're just part of this church family on board with what God is doing here. We would absolutely love that, and we hope God guides you in that path, or wherever he plans he has for you. Hey, before we go to the Word today, uh, I want to share with you a few things that are happening here at the church. First of all, um, I am heading off on to sabbatical this week. Sabbatical, what is sabbatical? Well, sabbatical comes from that word Sabbath, Sabbath meaning some rest. And so uh, a few uh, years ago when I became the pastor here, uh, the elders made it very clear. We want you staying refreshed and rejuvenated. Don't want you to get burnt out on us. So they kind of entered agreement with me. Every three years that I serve here at the church, they're going to give me an extra month off as a sabbatical to just kind of go recharge the batteries. And so uh, I became eligible for my first one back in 2017, and we took it in 2018. And then I became eligible again for another one right in the middle of COVID. Who's going to do that? And um, so we pushed it off to this summer. And so this is actually my last time to be preaching for about a month. And so, but we've got great guest preachers coming in, people that you are familiar with. Um, Kent Williams from Kimberling City is going to come and preach one of those sermons while I'm gone. And Kent's been here several times. Every time he's here, he's a big hit. Randy Garris will be here for a few weeks uh, filling the pulpit. Um, Randy was a longtime pastor at the College Heights Christian Church in Joplin, Missouri, a very strong, healthy church up in Missouri. So he's going to spend a couple weeks, weekends with us. Um, our very own Cody Raglan, our Connections pastor, he's going to preach one of those sermons while I'm gone. So... Listen, we are not going to miss a beat. You're going to forget I'm not even here, and we're just going to just keep cruising on, so you guys just keep coming, and, uh, but we do covet your prayers. We're going to do a little traveling um, over the next month, and just, you know, have some time to kick our feet up to, go to some places we've been wanting to go to, so we would definitely covet your prayers as uh, we're going to be doing a little traveling. Now, the second thing I want to share with you is uh, Vacation Bible School, or what we're calling Press Play, or Summer Experience, is starting today. And I think this is the very first time that I can remember anyway that I was told, hey, we got all the volunteers that we need for this event. Now, when does that ever happen? That we got plenty of volunteers. And so thank you so much for volunteering. Let me just thank you in advance. Many of you are, are going to be here helping out with that. I, I think something very special is about to happen if all of our volunteers, are all the roles are filled before we ever started. That, that's, that's awesome. I think Sarah Q, our children's director, is just doing an amazing job. Now, with Vacation Bible School, every summer, these kids take up an offering. We've been doing this for years. And it's always a competition between the boys and the girls because when you're in elementary school, what's more fun than a competition than boys beating girls and girls beating the boys? So it's always a competition. So they give their offering every night. And then at the end of the week, we take that offering. And then um, what we're doing with it this year is what we've done in similar years past. We're going to take all that money, and we're going to go out and buy uh, as many $25 gift cards as we can buy. And then the kids and some of the adults are going to write cards to their teachers, and we're going to put a $25 gift card into each envelope. And then we're going to give these all to our kids with the instructions to take them to their teacher on the very first day of school in the fall. 
And inside that card is a thank you letter for everything that they do teaching our children. And this $25 gift card is for them to use in whatever way they want to, to bless anybody they want to in their classroom. Every teacher usually has that one or two students that just needs a little bit extra tender loving care from their teacher. And this gift card is going to help them do that. And it's a gift from our church to them. And we've done it for several years. For several years. And it's just always a wonderful thing. So the offering's going to that. You say, well, why are, am I telling you that today? I'm telling you that today because our entire church also gets an opportunity to participate with this. It's not just the kids. Out in the atrium, there's the press play booth, and you're going to see two big jars on the table. There's a boy's jar, and there's a girl's jar. And you can participate with this first fruits offering. It all goes to the same place, but there's a competition happening this week. And if you want to help the boys a little bit or help the girls out a little bit, you're welcome to give and participate and be a part of it as well. So drop your pennies, nickels, quarters, and hundreds in there. And, uh, and uh, we'd love to uh, give you the opportunity to be generous as well. But that's what it's all going for, and I wanted to tell you that. Now today, we're wrapping up our series from the book of Job. So would you go ahead and open your Bibles and and go to Job chapter 38. Some of you use the app. The scripture will come up for you. There's also a Bible um, connected to our app, and there's also a great one um, uh, that you can find online. However you find Job 38, I would ask you to try to find that right now. And while you're you're turning there, um, let me just kind of refresh your memory just a little bit what's happening in Job. The book of Job is all about a guy named Job, and Job had it all. I mean, he was very wealthy in, in every way you can be wealthy back in Bible times. He had land, he had herds, he had flocks, he had servants, he had a huge family. This is a guy that had it all. And on top of that, the Bible tells us what? He was blameless and upright, he feared God, shunned evil, he was the most righteous guy in the entire land. So, Job is a good dude. But then on this one horrific day, what happens? He loses it all. I mean, everything, his kids and everything. And then shortly after that, he loses his health. His wife sees his condition, and you know what she tells him? Hey, just curse God and die. And then his friends show up to try to encourage him, but then they open their mouths, and what happens? A lot of not-so-wise counsel comes out. They end up just arguing with Job about his suffering. What Job didn't know, nor anybody else during this time, is that he was the subject of a conversation between God and Satan. In fact, the very beginning of the book of Job starts with a question. Do you remember what it was? Job, excuse me, Satan asked God, does Job fear God for nothing? That was was a question. I would say it's more than a question. I would say it's, it's more of a challenge to God. Satan is telling him, hey, if you take everything away, he'll curse you to your face. The only reason he loves you and the only reason he is the way that he is is because you blessed him immensely. Take it all away and he'll curse you to his face. And so God accepts Satan's challenge and he says, you can do whatever you want, but there was limits. Do you remember what the limit was? You cannot take his life. Do whatever you want to him, but you cannot take his life. Now, what followed next was suffering on a level that I don't know if any of us in this room can really fully comprehend. I mean, it's, it's suffering to a level that's hard to imagine. But even in all that, we read when it happened at the very beginning in Job chapter 1 and 2, it says that Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. But what we do learn over the next 35 chapters of the book of Job, is that Job did struggle 
mightily. He struggled mightily with his attitude towards God. And there are times that we read that Job aggressively questions God. Let me show you just a couple of those places. In Job chapter 7, verse 20, this is what Job said. If I have sinned, what have I done to you? You who see everything we do, why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? That's kind of an aggressive question for God. It happens again in Job chapter 10, verse 2. Job says, I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? That's pretty strong. You know, if you've never read the book of Job in its entirety, and maybe you're kind of going back to the archives of when you were in Sunday school as a kid and trying to remember the story of Job, then you might have the impression that all of this suffering that happens to Job, he just kind of sits there and takes it in quiet submission. But that's not correct at all. No, Job, no, no, no. He doesn't take it sitting down, really. He actually has a number of aggressive questions for God. He wants at times, and no, there's times he flat out demands to know why all this suffering is happening to him. And you know what? We today perhaps may have a hard time identifying with the magnitude of his suffering, but we can certainly more easily identify with the magnitude of his attitude and his questions. You know, in our quieter moments, have you ever looked up to heaven and maybe you said this verbally or you just thought it, but maybe you looked up to God and said, what did I ever do to deserve this? What did I do for this trouble to to land on my head? I mean, if you've ever wondered that, then you're really kind of identifying with Job in his attitude, even more so than his struggle. You know, there's even times that Job demanded of God that God respond and answer to him. In Job chapter 13, verse 20, he says this, Only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. Woo! To turn to your neighbor and say, that's that's pretty strong. That's, That's pretty strong. Or don't. It's okay. You don't have to. He does it again. In Job 31, verse 35, listen to what he says. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Now, it's quite clear as you read these 35 chapters where he's talking to his friends, he struggled mightily with his hardships. And and, and he is not all that different than a lot of people today. When we struggle with our hardships, we want to know why. You know, right or wrong, Job questions God and at time demands that God respond to him. Well, in Job 38, his request is going to be granted. God is going to respond to Job's demands. And let me just say this, and if you've read it, you know this. It does not go exactly how Job thought it would go in his mind. When God responds, let's look at it together. Look at Job chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man 
I will question you, and you shall answer me. Now, I'm just trying to imagine this moment, okay? I'm just trying to understand the magnitude of this moment. For 35 chapters, Job has been arguing with his friends about his suffering and sin and what God is like and what God will do and what God won't do. There's accusations that are made. There's conspiracy theories that are tossed around. God is questioned and accused. That goes on for 35 chapters. And then there's this storm that appears in the sky. And this storm descends as it approaches the earth where Job is at. Now, isn't that quite the description? I mean, I think this side alone of this storm that's approaching would be terrifying all by itself. But then to hear the voice of God speak out of this storm, I'm probably reading perhaps the most terrifying moment in the book of Job. I mean, this absolutely has to be a terrifying moment. Now, now God speaks, but Job can't see him because God has veiled himself in this storm cloud, which is not unlike how God has approached man in other parts of the Bible. I would also imagine that God's voice sounds like thunder. Now, why would I say that? Well, as you read other parts of the Bible, when God appears to man and he hides himself by a smoke screen or a cloud or something, the people who describe hearing God in those moments, they describe his voice sounding like thunder. And so I would imagine that this scene right here is very similar to what we have seen elsewhere in the Bible. God veils himself in some kind of cloud or storm cloud, and his voice sounds like, like thunder. All that to say this, God shows up in force. And it makes perfect sense why God would show up in the way that he did. It's because God is here to confront Job and all of his many questions. And the first question that God asked Job is very telling. Look at verse 2 again. What did God ask Job? The first thing. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Here's what I believe God is communicating with this question. I think God's really saying, Job, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? All this blabbering on without any awareness of what is really going on, you don't have a clue what's going on. Remember in, in previous sermons, what did we learn? Job's perspective is limited. He has no idea that his suffering is the result of a conversation between God and Satan. And here's just a little side note that, that may have passed by without you noticing it, but I want to point it out to you. There is no indication from Scripture that God ever told him why he was suffering. There's, there's not one time in these final five chapters of the book of Job that God explains that why Job had to suffer. Oh, and there's this conversation that I had with Satan. That's something you didn't know. And, and a lot of this is happening because of that. No, there is none of that. God never tells him why. Now, let that just sink in for a moment. 42 chapters, and God never explains why. In fact, over the next five chapters, the final five, God will do 99% of the talking and never once explain why Job is suffering. So that produces a question in my mind. If God never explains why, if God never answers the question of Job's suffering, then why does God ever even bother to speak at all because this is the big question that's hanging over Job's head why is all this happening to me and God never tells him so why does he speak why does God interject himself into the conversation 
What makes sense from the text, these last five chapters, is that God speaks to Job out of the storm to first of all rebuke him. That's obvious. But secondly, to heal him. God speaks out of the storm to rebuke and to heal Job. Now, we're not going to read all five chapters together today. I'm going to encourage you to do that on your own because I think that these last five chapters are some, if not the most exciting five chapters of the entire book of Job. This really pulls me back in to the whole life story of Job. But let's just We'll look at a few verses again. Again, verse 2, who is this who obscures my plans without words or knowledge? That's the first question God is going to rattle off to Job out of over 70 questions that God is going to fire off of him in rapid fire. I mean, Job's about to get the Gatlin gun of questions by God, okay? That's what's coming at him in rapid fire. For 35 chapters, what has Job been doing with his friends? They've been talking about God and making accusations and their own philosophies and it all comes down to not so wise counsel and God's like I'm going to show you Job the error of your thinking so verse 3 it says this brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me I think the storm and everything is already scariest enough to hear God's voice that's got to be terrifying and now God says Brace yourself like a man. Personally, I think every single man in this room can relate well to this verse number three. We identify with what God is saying to Job because I would assume that every one of us men at some point in our lives have either been told man up or we have told somebody else to man up. Am I right, guys? We've either said that to somebody or we have been told that. There's probably not a father in here of a son or sons who has never said to his son at some point in their lives, son, it's time to be a man. We, we've all said that if we have son. I have two sons. I've told them both many times. Time to be a man. Time to grow up. Why would a, a father say to his son, it's time to be a man? Well, there's a lot of reasons why a father would say that to his son. The father might say that to his son to encourage him to, to own up and take responsibility. That might be one context we would say that to a son. Father might say that to his son because he might say, hey, it's time to handle this thing as a grown-up. You're not a kid anymore. It's time to be a man. A father might say that to his son as a way to motivate him to be tough, to get strong, to don't quit, persevere. You know, maybe in the proper context, it might be used to say, hey, wipe those tears out of your eyes. It's time to face the music. Time to be a man. There's a lot of reasons why a father might say that to his son. Well, in Job's situation, his heavenly father is about to drop the hammer on him. And God is saying, you think you have the right to question me? You think you know more than I know, Job? No, 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 no. You don't ask me questions. I'm going to ask you questions, and you're going to stand there, and you're going to take it like a man. It's time, Job, for you to face the music. I've listened to all your philosophies long enough. You're going to stand there. You're going to own your responsibility in this, and you're going to own your ignorance. You're going to brace yourself like a man. This is the strength that God is speaking back to Job. Now let's read some of it. What did God say? Look at verse 4. We won't read it all, but we'll read a little bit of it. This is God putting Job in his place. He says this, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. 
Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? And who laid its cornerstone? And while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those in a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. What is the way to the abode of the light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the path to their dwelling? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. I'm going to stop right there, but that's not where God stops. God goes on for another chapter and a half with these rapid-fire questions. What are we reading here? We are reading God's rebuke of Job. We are reading God putting Job in his place. We are reading God answering a very important question. The question is, can a mortal man contend with God? This is the question that he's answering. And the answer to that question is what? It's no. A mortal man cannot contend with God. Now, in rapid fire, what does God do? He brings up creation, the sea, the dawn, the depths, light and darkness. He brings up, we didn't read this part, but all kinds of meteorological um, events like, like uh, 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 their phenomenon like lightning and hail and snow and rain. Um, he asks Job, he goes, does the lightning strike and then come report to you? He goes, no, it doesn't. So he talks, about, he talks about the stars and the clouds. And the implication of all of these questions is this. Job, what did you have to do with any of it? Well, what role did you play, Job, in the creation of the world? What role do you play in keeping it all going? And obviously the answer is none. The entire next chapter, God will speak all about the animal kingdom and all the animals of the earth and their behavior and, and what they do. And, and, and God challenges Job, you know, much of what the animal kingdom is, you don't even understand. They do things outside of your, your view. You can't see them. Um, they don't need really humans. They're out of your control. And then he says, who gave them instincts? And why do they behave the way that they do? He says, they behave the way I designed them to behave in the implication of all of God's questioning about the animals and the animal kingdom is, hey, Job, what role did you play in setting up the whole animal kingdom? What role do you play in keeping it going? Why do the animals even need you, Job? And the obvious answer is, uh, Job, I had nothing to do with it. That's Job's answer. Well, what is happening here with all these questions? I'll tell you what's happening. God is showing Job just how big he is and how little Job is. He's showing the distance between the two of them. That's what God is showing him. So after this first round of questions, God now says, all right, Job, what do you have to say for yourself? Flip over one page to chapter 40, 
And look at verse 1. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put a hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I'll say no more. For two whole chapters, God is just pounding Job with this awesome array of illustrations of his divine power and wisdom. And Job's like, I got no answer. It's, I spoke up once, that was a mistake. I tried twice, never again. And he said, I'm just going to put a hand over my mouth. You ever seen a kid say something like, oh. This is Job's response to God's two chapters of questions. Visually, this is what it looks like. I'm, I, I'm not going to say anything. The only thing he managed to say was, I am unworthy. And with that answer, we start to get a glimpse that Job is starting to get the message. And what message might that be? And the message is, what right do I have to contend with God? What right do I have to challenge God, to argue with God, to take on God? What right do I have to do that? I'm going to make an assumption here that many of us, if not all of us, are familiar at least with the 1994 Tom Hanks movie, Forrest Gump. We know that movie? There's a character in the movie Forrest Gump, and his name is Lieutenant Dan. Remember him? Lieutenant Dan fought in the Vietnam War, and, and he gets injured. He loses both legs, and he comes home, and he's angry. He's not a happy person. Life is not turning out the way he had planned. And what really becomes clear throughout the course of the movie is he's really angry at God. He's really angry at God. Well, through the course of the movie, he winds up with Forrest Gump after the war. And what do they go do together? They become shrimp and boat captains, remember? And they go out and they're trying to catch shrimp. They're trying to make a living doing this. And it is not going well. And Lieutenant Dan says to Forrest, where's this God of yours? And if you've seen the movie, Forrest Gump says, it's funny that Lieutenant Dan says that. I can't do a Forrest Gump. I try. I try. I practice, I can't do it. He said, it's funny that Lieutenant Dan said that because right then, God showed up. Do you remember this scene in the movie? They get overtaken by a hurricane and Forrest says, oh, I was scared to death, but Lieutenant Dan, no, 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 no. He climbed to the top of the crow's nest and he's like, we're having it out, God, you and me. And I'm gonna be very honest with you. Even to this day, this scene from this movie is one of the most uncomfortable scenes for me to watch of any movie. I remember seeing that for the first time, and you know, this movie is like on TV every other weekend, it feels like, and I'll watch a little bit sometimes. But what does he do? He, 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 he screams at God, you call this a storm? And then he cusses at God, and he flips God off, and and, and all of this stuff, and I'm going, no, 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 no. I, I know it's Hollywood, I know it's a movie, but you don't do that. I mean, I, you, you, don't, you don't fight God like this. You don't challenge God. You don't cuss at God. You don't, because man does not contend with God. Mortal man doesn't. Now, I know it's a movie. And, and I know that the creators of this movie never intended to make a Job-like figure out of Lieutenant Dan. I know that. But there's a similarity a little bit 
You know, after that storm, Lieutenant Dan's a completely different man, isn't he? I mean, the rest of the movie, he is not the same guy. And Forrest Gump says, I think Lieutenant Dan made his peace with God. You know, it's interesting. God comes to Job in a storm and absolutely rebukes him. Job, in many ways, had been challenging God. Answer me. I want to know why. Why is this happening to me? It's a showdown. You and me. And God answers him. And Job, I got nothing. Job is humbled. And I think like Lieutenant Dan was humbled. Job was humbled. And it answers the question, can a mortal man contend with God? No. And we shouldn't. And then you get into chapter 40 and into chapter 41. God will answer a second question. And the question is this, shall man charge God with unrighteousness? As you read into the next two chapters, it becomes very clear that God is answering that question. And you go back and read the 35 chapters where Job is arguing with his friends. What does come out of that is there's these times that Job has regarded what has happened to him as an illustration of God's unrighteousness. There's times that Job is speculating, all this is happening to me. It's got to be because God somehow is unrighteous in some way. Like, like somehow that he cares about other people more than, than me. And, 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 and it seems like God is directly answering that question over the next two chapters. Look at verse 6 of chapter 40. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. So in other words... Same song, second verse, okay? This is God. We're going to go at it again. Round one is over. Ding, ding. Here comes round two. This is what we're reading. And then he says, would you condemn, no, excuse me, verse eight, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. God's point here is pretty straightforward. He's saying, Job, you and I are not equal. So how dare you say such a thing? We're not equals. In fact, Job, if you think that you can do a better job than me, then you go ahead, put a crown on your head, adorn yourself with glory and splendor. What's God doing? God is sarcastically challenging Job to play God. If you think you can do better, Go for it. And then he says in verse 11, Job, unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit that you, that your own right hand can save you. What's God's point here with all of this? God's point is that Job was challenging God's character and his ability to rule the world and perhaps that he thought maybe he could do just a little bit better. And Job's like, or excuse me, God's like, Job, you don't even have a clue. Don't even think for a second that you could fill my shoes because you can't. Now there is a whole lot happening in those few verses. We could spend a lot of time with a lot more detail, but I think the point is this. God's saying, I'm God you're not. It's not even close. What makes you think that you have the right to accuse me of some kind of unrighteousness in your life? 
So in all this journey with all these questions, God is just showing that there's this huge gap between where God is and where Job is at. There's a huge gap in understanding of what God knows and what Job knows. Now, we're not going to read it right now, but you on your own, read the rest of chapter 40 and 41 because it is an awesome description of two creatures. God's going to give an illustration of these two creatures to show that he and Job, just how far apart they actually are. The first beast or the first creature is called Bohemoth. And the second creature is called Leviathan. Now, I'd be really curious to know, as you read chapter 40 and chapter 41 on your own, what creature do you think God is describing? Now, it's obviously a creature that, that Job knows. Uh, many Bible scholars, a lot of people think that when they read the full description that God gives of Bohemoth, that God is describing a hippopotamus. That's where a lot of people think that's what he's describing. There are a few details that don't add up to be hippopotamus, and that's why a lot of people have kind of come around this idea that God is describing a brontosaurus. We don't know. We really don't know. It's possible. I think it's perfectly possible it could have been a dinosaur. And then there's Leviathan. As you read it, the impression I get is God is describing a really bad, mean-looking dinosaur, or excuse me, a crocodile. That's what I think Leviathan. It, it seems like a crocodile. But others, you know, I'm also comfortable. It could have been some kind of marine dinosaur that survived the flood. It's perfectly possible. I'm comfortable. I'm really curious to know what you guys think about as you read it on your own. But what you read in chapter 40 and 41 are these just incredibly awesome descriptions of these two creatures that Job would know quite well. And this is what God asked him about Bohemoth. Chapter 40, verse 23, he said, hey, Job, a, a raging river does not alarm it. It is secure, though the Jordan should surge against his mouth. Can, can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap it or pierce its nose? In other words, he's like, this Bohemoth, has anybody been able to tame one? Has anybody been able to capture one? Has anybody been able to make it its pet? <laughs> no. And then he says this about Leviathan, chapter 41, verse 8. He said, if you lay a hand on it, on Leviathan, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. So these two mighty beasts that God spends nearly two chapters describing... Bohemoth and Leviathan, untamable by man, nobody can control them, and so God makes his point in verse 10. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Here, here's God's point. Job, if you can't even control these two creatures, Bohemoth and Leviathan, if you can't even control them, then how in the world could you possibly stand up to the one who created them? That's the whole point. Job, we're not equals. We're so far apart. You're challenging me on unrighteousness. You're challenging me on how I rule the world. You think you can do better. And he's like, you can't even tame these two animals that I created. We're not on the same playing field here, Job. And Job got the message. Chapter 42, verse 1. We'll wrap it up with this. Then Job said to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things 
I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job got the message. Did we get the message? Job got the message. Did we get the message? Are we getting the message? Do we understand what it is that we are supposed to understand when it comes to God and suffering? You know, there's a lot of lessons we can take away from the book of Job. I want to quickly share with you three. These are three takeaways from the book of Job that really hit me pretty hard. The first lesson is this. I don't have to know everything because my faith is in the one who does. Friends, that message just rings loud and clear to me. There is some kind of instinct in us. There's some desire to know why everything is happening to us. Everything bad, every struggle we've ever had, there's got to be a reason for it. It's just like Job. But what I take away from the book of Job is that I, I don't have to know all of those things. Job never knew all of the details. But he came to have faith in the one who does. And I believe that's such an important thing for us as Christians as we navigate the journey of life to understand, God, I, my faith is in you. I, I, I'm going to believe in you. My eyes are set on you. I, I don't have to have every I dot and every T cross with everything that's going on in my life because I believe in you. It's a huge lesson I see. There's a second lesson. It's this. The why of suffering is not nearly so important as the who. The why is not nearly as important as the who. God never told Job why. But he spent a long time telling him all about who? God. There's this really clear message that comes through that God was more concerned that Job knew him and understood God, then he understood his problems. That resonates with me a lot. Like when we suffer, we want to know why, but we're better off knowing who. We're better off focusing our attention on the greatness of God. We can spend all of our time wondering why certain things happen, or we can keep our eyes focused on the one who loved each of us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Three days later, he rose back to life, and he is alive and well this, to this day, and he is coming back again to get us, and one day we are going to be in heaven forever. I would much rather focus on the greatness of our God who has all of this in store for us and everything that he has done for us than to understand why certain things happen in my life. Friends, it's so much more important to, to know who we're dealing with than the why behind what happens to us. A third lesson that just rings super clear to me, and I, I hope it's obvious, God is in control. God is in control. From, from the very beginning of the book of Job, we see that God was in control. Satan couldn't do a thing to Job without God allowing it to happen. God put limits on Satan. And God knew how much Job could bear, just like he knows how much we can bear. And then at the very end, he makes it very known who he is and, and, and everything. 
It's so obvious from the book of Job, maybe as obvious in the book of Job as anywhere else in the Bible, that God has got his hand on the wheel, he's got his foot on the gas and brake, he knows everything, nothing escapes his notice, and I just wonder how many of us maybe need to be reminded of that today. God's in control. You know, I like stories that have a really good, happy ending, and if you've read ahead or you know the story, Job's story ends really well. After Job gets the message and he humbles himself, that's a whole nother sermon, but in humility he repents and he understands there's things that happen with his friends. You go back and, and read that on your own. But he gets this message, what does God do? He First of all, he restores Job's health, completely restores him back to health. What does that tell you about God's control over every situation? Restores himself. Everything that Satan took away, God gave right back to him. And not only that, God doubled it. That's pretty awesome. Job lost all 10 of his children. He had seven sons and three daughters. And in the rest of Job's life, God gave him back seven more sons and three more daughters. And I guess they were really great kids from what I understand. You know, sometimes people say, hey, who were the prettiest women in the Bible? Job's kids. Job's daughters, that's what the Bible says. Why is that detail in there? I don't know, but I'm going to point it out to you. said they were the prettiest women anywhere. So if you learn anything, you learn that. Job had pretty kids. And the Bible says that Job got to live a really long life. And he got to see his family grow and develop to the fourth generation. That's pretty awesome. That's how Job's story ends. I don't know how your story ends. Ultimately, I know how all of our story ends. For believers, we get to be in heaven forever. But for whatever, for Job, God, God blessed him. But are you okay even if he doesn't take away your illness? Are you okay if, if he doesn't bring back something that you think you are owed? Are you still okay? Are, are you still okay if you hurt the rest of your life? Are you still okay if not every problem in your world gets solved? You will be. Because we're focused on the who, not the why. God's still in control. And, and, and our faith is in the one who knows everything. It can really take off a lot of pressure. Friends, let me pray for you. Dear God, I just want to thank you for your word. And I know, Lord, we seem to have fast-forward through the book of Job pretty quickly. But, Lord, I pray you help us to absorb the truths from it. Lord, I, I just pray that, that Lord, you, you, like you did with Job, you made yourself known. And I just feel, Lord, there's some folks in here today that need you to make yourself known to them. Now, Lord, I, I don't know if you would do that in a storm cloud or through a soft voice. But, Lord, I pray that your presence would be known today. And, Lord, I pray for anybody in this room, but they're in the middle of their own storm. They're in the middle of their own struggle. There's, there's unexplained events. There's things that are out of their control. No matter how hard they want it, they can't change it. There's some real tragedy that has befallen on some of our families in our church right now. Unexplained events. Lord, what, whatever they may be, would you help us, God, 
to focus on you more than anything else. Lord, would you help us to wake up each and every day committed to this daily walk with you? Lord, with an understanding that not all of my questions may get answered, not all my problems might get resolved, but I believe in you and my faith won't be shaken by what's happening in my life or the world. Lord, I want to be blameless and upright. Lord, I want to fear you and shun evil. Lord, I want to walk with you daily. Lord, may that be our drive as we leave this place today. Lord, we thank you for being the God who saves. Lord, we thank you for being the God that where ultimately, no matter what happens in this world, we get to be with you forever. So Lord, we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.